Hey listeners, before we get into today's episode, I want to give you an episode that you need to write down and remember. It will be an episode we will release on February the 12th. That is a Friday, and I was able to sit down and record an interview episode with one of my personal heroes of the faith, Evangelist Dave Summerdorf. And he was here in my area, and we were able to sit down and have an interview episode where he shares his story. And if you haven't heard the story of Evangelist Dave Summerdorf, you're going to want to hear it in that episode on February the 12th. I'm so excited for it. And we talked about many things. I'm sure you're wondering what we talked about. Well, I'm going to make you wait for that. I'm not going to give you any details on what we talked about. We talked about many subjects that will be a help and a blessing to you. So make sure to be watching and be listening for that episode on February the 12th, an interview episode with evangelist Dave Summerdorf. But for today, here's our episode. And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. Thank you for listening to Sandy Creek Stirrings. Glad to have you with me today here for a Baptist History episode on Thursday. I'm your host, Joshua Jimenez, and glad to have you with me again today here on the podcast. Let me encourage you on whatever platform you're listening on to make sure you hit that that subscribe or that follow button to make sure you get notifications for whenever we post a new episode, and it'll keep you updated and in the loop. If you listen on our website, you can go down to the bottom and put in your email to make sure that the episodes get emailed directly to you and you can stay up to date with all of those episodes. Make sure as well, if you would like to, and if this has been a blessing to you, the podcast has, then uh, leave us a review on one of the platforms, whether it be Facebook or Apple Podcast, and you can leave one of those reviews for us just to help us and help us gain a little bit more audience. And so that would be a blessing if you should choose to do that. Of course, you can always send in a question for our Q&A. You can send those questions in to Joshua at SandyCreekStirrings.com. Again, that's Joshua at SandyCreekStirrings.com. Simply send us an email or you can go to our contact page on our website. That's SandyCreekStirrings.com. Simply click the contact page and you can fill out the little question form and uh, send us a question that way. Or you can go to Facebook, simply type in Sandy Creek Stirrings and you can send us a question in that way. I hope you've been enjoying the Baptist History Series here on Thursday. We really only have, I'm going to give you a little secret, as long as I get through this entire uh, lesson today. So we're going to jump right in here in a second. We're just going to go, go, go. And uh, But as long as I get through this entire episode portion, today. This is the second to last episode of our Baptist History series, and so it's coming to a close. It's taken a little while, and uh, but we took our time, made sure we took an in-depth study at Baptist History, and I hope you, as you have listened, have gotten a better understanding of your history. If you're a Baptist, I hope you've gotten a better understanding of your history as a Baptist, and I hope it's giving you a better appreciation for what was sacrificed um, by those behind us. And, um, you know, they really laid so much on the line for us so that we could have that. And so today will be the second to last episode on Baptist history. 
I will be making an announcement next week on what direction I've decided to go with Thursdays. And so you'll want to stay tuned next week to hear that announcement on what we're going to do with Thursdays moving forward. And so you're going to want to make note of that. But for today's episode, let's dive right in and get into our um, lesson for today. And I'm excited about it. It's something that really is just powerful if you can get a hold of it. Last week, we talked about Baptists in the American Constitution, how John Leland stood up. Really, if it was not for the Baptists, would we have the religious freedom that we have today written within the Bill of Rights? The answer, plain and simple, is no, you would not. And so today, what we're going to do is, now that we have completed up through that portion of the American Constitution. We're going to go back just a couple years and then work back through that time period, but in a different sense. I want to go back and let you allow you to see the gospel moving across the nation during this time to from just before the um, the completion of the American Constitution and our religious freedom and moving through forward on to many, many years past that. So I want you to listen very closely because we are about to fly. And so I want to allow you to see, as I mentioned, the gospel moving into other states. And so let's talk about the gospel to Georgia, the gospel to Georgia. Hopefully we have some Georgia listeners out there. I know we do. I can see at least states and cities that people are listening from. And so thank you to all my Georgia listeners. Here's where the gospel got to you. Daniel Marshall, you remember remember that name? He was the assistant to, of course, Shubal Stearns, in my opinion, the most um, the most influential Baptist in history to the North American continent uh, would have been Shubal Stearns. That's my personal opinion. You can disagree with me. He is my favorite figure in Baptist history. But Daniel Marshall would definitely be number two. He had a big impact on reaching people, was big in um, just reaching people there in North Carolina. But shortly before the death of Shubal Stearns, Daniel Marshall had actually moved from North Carolina and moved to the wilderness of Georgia. It was a wilderness at this time. And he began planting churches. According to Georgia law, though, at this time, Okay, according to Georgia law, I know now it's like Georgia has a has a church on every street corner. But according to Georgia law now, it was illegal, or back then, not now, it was illegal to worship contrary to the, quote, the rights of the Church of England. If it wasn't an Anglican church, you were not allowed to practice. But Marshall went anyway. Um, he had started many churches in North Carolina. He'd started in South Carolina. And so he went to Keokie Creek. And isn't it interesting? He came from Sandy Creek and went to Keoki Creek. I don't know what it was with these Baptists, but they always went near a creek. My guess is, is that they needed somewhere to baptize in deep water, my friend, deep water. And so they found a creek. He went near Keoki Creek, and he began to pray and began to preach. And before he could even finish, though, where he had gathered this church and was actually praying, before he, he could finish praying for this service, he was arrested and he was imprisoned. He was 65 years old. 65 years old. And he was going to prison. As he was led along the way, his wife, uh, which was Shubal Stearns' sister, by the way, walked alongside as he was led to the prison bars. She, she read scripture. She quoted verses. I mean, her boldness and her faithfulness just reeked out the conviction of the heart that she had for what she believed in. It really just began to work on that constable who was leading Marshall away to prison. It worked on his heart. They were, they were ordered to leave Georgia. But Marshall said, you know, whether it be right to obey God or man, judge ye, I'm just going to continue to preach Christ. And so they let him out, told him, don't do it again, and he continued to preach Christ through the Georgia wilderness. What you'll find is that constable, remember, that day, 
who had led Marshall to prison. He became so overcome by this conviction that he was eventually led to the Lord and baptized. His name was Samuel Cartledge. In fact, if you Google in Samuel Cartledge, Baptist preacher, you can find his tombstone. He went on to preach, a picture of it rather, he went on to preach until he, until he died when he was 93 years old. How incredible. He served God faithfully for many years. Now, Samuel Cartledge was not the only preacher boy who came from Keoki Creek Baptist Church and Pastor Marshall joining him. And here's what I want you to see. I don't, you don't have to remember these names, but I want to give you an idea of just the ministry that Daniel Marshall had here in Georgia. These are all preacher boys that were one under the leadership of Daniel Marshall and the Keoki Creek Baptist Church. Let me give you just a few of them. These aren't even all of them. Samuel Newton, Abraham Marshall, which was Daniel Marshall's son, Alexander Scott, Sanders Walker, Charles Bussey, Loveless Savage. What a great name, Loveless Savage. Um, Seems like his parents really didn't like him. And John and James Saunders, John Stanford, John Boyd, H.A. Boyd, James N. Brown, D.W. Marshall, Jabez Marshall, James Sims, Silas Mercer, Thomas Mercer, and by the way, many more. The point is, he had such a great impact because no matter his age, he was 65 when he was put in prison. No matter his age, he continued to work and serve God. What's your excuse? Well, if I talk about God, they're going to make fun of me. Oh, come on. Come on. Seriously, that's what stops you from sharing the gospel with other people? Here he is, 65, possibly facing prison terms and things of that. He doesn't have much longer to live, but he's still serving God. How incredible and how sad it is what stops us from sharing the gospel with other people. Now, Daniel Marshall, he had an extremely profitable ministry, one of the most profitable and fruitful of all Baptists, in my opinion, second only to Shubal Stearns. He started one Baptist church in Virginia, He started six in South Carolina. He aided in starting several in North Carolina and started six in Georgia after the age of 65. Did you hear that? He started six churches in Georgia after the age of 65. And he finally left this world to enter heaven's gates on November 2nd of 1784. And you'll find his son, Abraham Marshall, who, by the way, married the daughter of John Waller. Yep, there you go, took over in his place. With his home base in Georgia, Abraham Marshall traveled often and saw many saved in his revival meetings. He records the progress of the Baptist churches in Georgia, containing over 3,300 members in just 20 years. Isn't that incredible? In just 20 years, they had over 3,300 members in these churches in Georgia. After his death, his son Jabez took over as the pastor of Keoki Creek Baptist Church. These three men, great-grandfather, or not great-grandfather, grandfather, um, dad, and then son, these three men, these three generations, pastored that same church at Keoki Creek for 60 years between the three of them, and how incredible that is. So the gospel to Georgia. Let's talk about the gospel to Tennessee. I know we have some listeners in Tennessee. Thank you for listening. Some of the very first preachers to travel into Tennessee with the gospel were preacher boys of Shubal Stearns. Men like William Murphy, John Mulkey, he was the son of Philip Mulkey, if you remember our episode on Shubal Stearns in the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. And then Tidens Lane, if you remember him from the um, the Baptist in the American War for Independence, how he was in, um, had a part in the Overmountain Men. Uh, Tidens Lane had a great ministry in Tennessee within five years of their entrance, there were five Baptist churches. Five years, five Baptist churches. And so 
In 1790, though, Baptist chaplain and preacher boy of Shubal Stearns, John Gano, remember him? Of course, baptized George Washington. He went to Red River, which was on the border of Kentucky, and he began planting churches. By 1784, there were 370 members in their Baptist churches, and in 1792, they had grown to 889, over double of what they had just two, or just, oh, that's eight years before. And so what a mighty work God was doing in Tennessee. How about the gospel to Kentucky? Gospel to Kentucky. God began moving on the dark and bloody ground, as Kentucky has often been called, with really seven preachers. One of these was a man by the name of Squire Boone Jr. He was the little brother of Daniel Boone. And by the way, it was no surprise um, because the Boone family had been touched by the Shubal Stearns ministry as well. Isn't it interesting how Shubal Stearns is gone? He's passed on, and he's affecting all these other states with the work he had done. It's incredible. Incredible. They had been members, though, the, the Boone family had been members of um, Joseph Murphy's church in Shallow Fords for quite some time. And Joseph Murphy, of course, was one of the very first preacher boys of Shubal Stearns, Two churches were soon started in Kentucky, but the title of the third belonged to another one of Stern's boys. And I, I want to just drop out of that main narrative for a second and give you this story of this third church in Kentucky. In 1781, September to be exact, Lewis Craig, do you remember him? He was a revival preacher of Virginia. He was pastor of the Upper Spotsylvania County Baptist Church in Virginia. He was a friend of John Waller. He uh, held a farewell service in a place known as Craig Station, and a large majority of that church had determined to move with Lewis Craig to go start a church in Kentucky. From there, they would plant that church, and they would begin planting other churches within Kentucky the same way they had done in Virginia. And so that group, though, consisted of 600 people. Not only that, the journey would be 600 miles. And so along the way, Lewis Craig started a church in Abingdon, Virginia. I mean, they're traveling through, and he's like, hey, let's start a church here. And they started one in Abingdon, Virginia. Uh, they stayed there for a short little while and then moved on. They entered through the Cumberland Gap and continued in Kentucky. They traveled through Boonesboro of Daniel Boone and continued on. Finally, they came to Gilbert's Creek and their goal destination and established their church in December of 1781. They had traveled 600 miles in four months, roughly five miles a day. And so his church would have a part in starting the Clear Creek Baptist Church in Kentucky and many others. In 1784, William Hickman, a preacher boy of John Waller, came to Kentucky and began preaching and planting churches. He had a really fruitful ministry, saw souls saved, churches started. It's really a shame that we don't have time to go into more of his story. But then you have Elijah Craig. He was Lewis Craig's brother. He came to Kentucky, and John Gano ended up coming to Kentucky as well. And within short amount of time, around 20 years, there were 42 Baptist churches in Kentucky, just within 20 years. And so God was doing a mighty work in Kentucky. How about the gospel to Ohio? The gospel to Ohio, you have Stephen Go, or Stephen Go. Well, he did go, but it's Stephen Gano. He was the son of John Gano. He made his way to Ohio, began preaching the gospel. He started a church near Duck Creek. Yeah, they start all their churches near creeks. And he started a church near Duck Creek. It's like wherever they found a creek, they're like, let's start the church right here. It must be providential. And so they started a church near Duck Creek, six miles, by the way, from present-day Cincinnati. Within seven years, they had started three Baptist churches. Isn't it incredible? 
They get into a brand new place, a wilderness basically, start a church and then begin to plant other churches. If we could get a hold of their system and the way they did things and get a hold really of their their zeal, their zeal for God, if we could get a hold of that in modern day, what we could do in today's world with the technology and the things that we have, the roads we have, uh, the, the way we can travel, the interstates, all those things— if we could get a hold of that zeal, my goodness, how many churches could we start for the cause of Christ? I'm afraid we just don't have the zeal that they used to. We don't have the fire. The fire. It's sad. It's very sad. Three Baptist churches in seven years in Ohio. Then you got the gospel to Mississippi, and I salute you, Mississippi, my birth state, one of my favorite states I ever lived in, Mississippi. And so some of the most noted preachers of Mississippi were Richard Curtis. He was a convert of Isaac Backus and Thomas Mercer. He was one of the preacher boys of Daniel Marshall from Georgia, and he was really considered a revivalist of his day. Uh, but he suffered much at the hands of the Spanish. They controlled Mississippi at that time. And um, don't have time to go into his story today, but look up Richard Curtis and what he what he sacrificed for the cause of Christ. It's incredible. I went many years without seeing his family because of being imprisoned. But in 40 years, you'll find within Mississippi, there were 36 Baptist churches. 40 years, 36 Baptist churches. Incredible. The Gospel to Missouri. Missouri. I had the pleasure of living in Missouri for about five years, lived in Carthage, Missouri, and so we um, had a part in a church there where my dad trained for the ministry, Crossroads Baptist Church in Carthage, Missouri. And so let's talk about how the gospel got into Missouri in the first place. The first true Baptist preacher to take the gospel into Missouri was William Murphy. Remember him? Preacher boy of Shubal Stearns. That's right, again. He had preached in uh, North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee most recently, but God began to move him either further west. God was just moving these guys to bring the gospel to every single state. And so he crossed the Mississippi River with his two sons by his side. Um, the two sons were named William and David. They staked a land claim in Missouri with plans to bring people back to the claim and start a Baptist church in a settlement. By the way, the same way that the other Stearns boys did in, in other states. They would go, they would stake a land claim, they would bring uh, members of churches, and they would settle there, start a settlement, and then start churches. And so that was his plan for Missouri. And so they began to travel back, but while on his way through Kentucky, he stopped at the home of one of his other sons, a, a, a man by the name of John. He was a, a Baptist pastor, his son. And William Murphy stopped there and died, never being able to see his vision come true. William's wife, her name was Sarah Murphy, she decided to not let his vision go down. She took the 1,000-mile trip to St. Francois County, where her husband and two sons had staked claims and settled on the land with her two boys. Now, while she didn't organize a Baptist church, after all, she was a lady and not biblically allowed to pastor a church, she did organize the first Sunday school west of the Mississippi in 18. After seeing her resolve, Baptist preachers traveled to Missouri and began starting Baptist churches all over the state of Missouri. How incredible. A lady who just wouldn't quit. As much as we talk about men in our Baptist history series, I want to be very clear. There were so many ladies who stood up for the cause of Christ and did incredible things. Think about Sarah Murphy taking her two sons and going a thousand miles to start a Sunday school because she didn't want the, le- the vision that her husband died with to, f- to fall away. Absolutely incredible. 
incredible, and she would impact other other Baptists who were maybe too scared to go into the land to uh, come and begin starting Baptist churches. Incredible. The Gospel to Oklahoma. Now, the story of the first Baptist church in Oklahoma really starts with a resilient Baptist hero, and that's exactly what he was. He was a Baptist hero, um, but really a forgotten one in history. His story is not filled with splendor. Um, its end brings really almost a pang of sadness. He was a silent warrior, an unrecognized hero, a man who did something great for God, though many pushed him off, didn't want to be associated with him. His name was Isaac McCoy. Isaac McCoy. Now, McCoy was the son of a Baptist preacher in Kentucky. He was saved at age 16, and in 18, he married 18-year-old Christiana Polk. His wife, Christiana, um, his wife's mother had been kidnapped by the Ottawa Indians along with three of her siblings. But you'll find this did not make her bitter. She simply prayed for them and asked God to send someone to share the gospel with the Ottawas. In 1804, they traveled to Indiana, and Isaac helped to form a Baptist church, which he pastored for eight years at an incredible ministry, and he began to preach all over Illinois and Indiana. In 1812, when the war broke out again, Isaac was a soldier, and he was sent to the Indian territories to conduct raids of the Indians who were allied with the British. It was during this time that he began to see the incredible lost condition of the Indians. He saw the need for Indians who didn't even have a Bible, Native Americans, and a need for someone to stand up for their rights. The, by the way, the Baptists had always stood for the rights of everyone. In 1817, he and his wife joined the Triennial Convention, which if you remember when we talked about uh, worldwide missions, we talked about the Triennial Convention. We won't go into it today. But he began working out of the Triennial Convention as missionaries, he and his wife, to the Native Americans. Here's a lady who her mother and three of her siblings were kidnapped when she was just a small child. They were kidnapped. She never saw them. Incredible. And she would go and be a missionary to them. He set up, Isaac McCoy and his wife, they set up a, a mission in Indian Territory with his wife, and now he had seven children. And so he asked for more laborers. He had five Native American churches. Five he had started. He needed help, but he's pushed away. Some believe that the Indians were nothing more than savages, not people. It's ridiculous. They began to even oppose him. Some even wrote books condemning him and his work among the Native Americans. Groups of churches broke off from the mission board because of his association. It was absolutely terrible. And so the mission board was really unsure of what to do. What do we do? They were receiving so much fire from others because of the ministry of the McCoys. So the mission board decided that they would not share the work of Isaac McCoy's ministry and that they wouldn't tell, talk about it. They wouldn't tell about it. They were quiet about it. It was really a sad time for the McCoys. They were alone. They moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, began more work. They needed help, but instead, the mission board sent over $10,000 that were earmarked for the work like the McCoys. They built a college with it instead. But the McCoys remained patient. They remained loving and kind. Brother McCoy traveled thousands of miles each few months, was sick constantly from unending work. He suffered migraines, constant fevers, frequent infections, and what we now know as diabetes, but he continued to serve God. In fact, he even heard of a group of Potawatomi Indians. They wanted to hear this white preacher. They were led by a chief by the name of Menominee. 
And so Isaac McCoy traveled several days with them and to be in their camp. And But he was unable to stay further. He got very sick and had to go back home. But he recorded this in his journal, quote, But among three or four thousand of our denomination, referring to the Baptist, in the United States, none manifested a willingness to make his home in the desert and teach these poor, anxious inquirers the path to heaven. Within a year time of which we are writing, the party as such began to dwindle, and long since it has ceased to exist as a religious party. We cannot now go back to atone for our criminal neglect of the party of poor Menomini. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I tried to help them. I tried to do my best. I tried to reach them. I needed help. But nobody would give it. Nobody would help me. And now, it's too late. Friend, what is stopping you and I? What is stopping you and I from reaching the lost and dying who want to know? But in the end, for whatever reason, we don't reach them. And now it's too late. Let that never be said of us. If no one would come to the outside to help from the outside, well, McCoy just determined he would raise helpers from the inside, and so he took seven of his young Indian converts to college, uh, that college that the mission board had started. They were rejected. It shocked McCoy. I mean, the college was started to train missionaries. Why wouldn't they train these guys who, who were going to reach their own? Now, in the end, another college in New York accepted them and trained them, but a confused, really, McCoy headed back to Indiana. The Indians were moved um, by the government west of the Mississippi, and we don't have time to go into McCoy and his involvement within the government and securing lands for them. And I mean, had a big part in this, and so uh, make sure to look up Isaac McCoy and his involvement in that. But the Indians were moved, of course, west of the Mississippi. The McCoys went with them. And so we remember we opened up with the gospel in Oklahoma. The first Baptist church in Oklahoma was started by a full-blood Creek Indian who took the name of John Davis, and he started that church with the help of Isaac McCoy. And they saw something incredible with over 80 members in one year. Pastor Davis completed the translation of John and Matthew into the Creek language. Through this, though, the mission board never recognized him as the pastor. He was simply, quote, the native assistant. That's ridiculous. Shortly after, McCoy finally broke from the mission board and formed his own. He formed the American Indian Mission Association, and he would die a forgotten man in history. But not without having given his life to see many, many Indians come to know Christ as their Savior. The point behind the story is to never let opposition stop you from doing what you know is right. Though he may not be remembered in the great halls of the world, I bring to you the story of Isaac McCoy here on Sandy Creek Stirrings so that we may remember him and his heroism in the fight for the Baptist cause. Now, we don't have time to talk about all the other states and how the gospel got to them, but I do want to name you a few that were touched by the ministry of Sandy Creek Baptist Church in North Carolina. Illinois would be touched by David Badgley. He was a convert of Joseph Redding, who was a convert of Colonel Samuel Harris, who, remember, was a convert of the Murphy Boys, who was a convert of Shubal Stearns. And so Illinois, touched by the hand of Shubal Stearns. The gospel to Alabama would be brought by David Andrews, who, if you went back, would 
B, all the way back to Shubal Stearns, and so many more. God would stretch out the hand of not only the ministry of Stearns and Marshall, but of Bacchus and Williams and Clark as well. It was not long before Baptists took the gospel to Louisiana, Arkansas, Florida, Michigan, Oklahoma, Iowa, Texas, and eventually all 50 states. God was working mightily through these ministries. And you'll find that that Bible belt that you've heard of, and we know it as today, look it up, Google it, type in a Bible belt map. It's a product of the great ministry of the Sandy Creek Baptist Church and Pastor Shubal Stearns. What incredible work they did. Now, I just realized something. We're about to talk about the modern missionary movement. I know just a minute ago we mentioned the Triennial Convention. I said go back and listen to our episode on the modern modern missionary movement. Um, we haven't actually talked about that yet, and so I totally forgot that's in today's episode, not a previous one. Let's talk about modern missionary movement, how the God began to spread the gospel around the globe. And so the Baptists were growing. We've seen that. They were doing a great job at reaching um, their Judea and their Samaria with the gospel. They were spreading it in their country. But God began to lay it on their hearts that they needed to now take the gospel from their new comfort zone where they had a religious freedom to people who didn't have the gospel. Places like Africa, places like India, Asia, eastern parts of Europe, thousands of souls were lost and dying, destined for hell. Somebody needed to reach them, and God said, I want you. You have the religious freedom now. Now it's your turn to go back and to reach them with the gospel. And so we call it the modern missionary movement. And really it was a movement that was spearheaded by a great British missionary. His name was William Carey. He was a Baptist. He was born August 17th, 1761. Somewhere around 1783, he was a shoemaker by trade and got saved, became a Baptist. And in 1785, he began preaching. 1789, he became a pastor. Well, a few years later, 1792, God was working on his heart about foreign missions. So he even wrote a book on biblical missions. It was entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversions of the Heathen. What a title. Goodness. And later on in the same year, he and some other Baptists formed the Baptist World Mission. And it was really the one of, if not the first, mission board of its time. Its goal was to help raise support, show the need of, and aid missionaries in getting to the field. That's really what a mission board does. You'll find, though, that is his vision it didn't come without opposition. When he presented his burden to a group of Baptists, one of the older men stood up and said to him, Sit down, young man. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Well, that's not—that's a dumb statement. In 1793, William Carey and his family left his missionaries to India. His motto was, Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Times for missionaries back then were quite different than they are now. Today, missionaries tend to go to lands they have been well-prepared for. They go with the benefit of language school and Bible college degrees. Uh, they go with understanding of how to deal with culture shock and things of that sort, but such was not the case in 1800. Like the first missionaries who followed him, William Carey was in an unknown land when he went to India. There was no example to follow. There was no mission textbooks to carry along. There, was, there weren't even experienced missionaries to show him the way. In 1796, fever swept through, claiming the life of his five-year-old son. And a sad time came. In 1809, William Carey had translated the entire scripture into Bengali. By 1837, he and other missionaries that had come to India were able to translate the scripture into over 40 different 
languages. You know something interesting, though? For seven years, William Carey didn't see one single soul get saved. Would you continue for seven years having not seen a soul get saved? He did. He did. On a miraculous day in December of 1800, he was able to see his first Hindu soul get saved and baptized. By 1821, William Carey was able to see 1,400 people accept Christ as their Savior. Amazing. He opened his vision, a school for the natives, in 1798. Within 20 years, they had started 102 more schools. He saw fruitful ministry in India for quite some time. I want to talk to you about a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. You probably heard that name before. They were two Congregationalist missionaries to Burma. One was Adoniram Judson, and the other one was a man by the name of Luther Rice. They were on a ship on February 19th of 1812. On the way, these Congregationalists... They decided to stop on the way to where they were going into Burma, which would be modern-day Myanmar. They decided to stop off in India and meet William Carey. And so on the way, though, they knew he was a Baptist. They were Congregationalists. And so they began to read the Bible, and they wanted to, um, you know, kind of talk to him about, you know, how infant baptism is the right thing. And so they began to read their Bible about baptism, realized that infant baptism was not in the Bible, and on the ship they cut ties with the Congregationalists and became Baptists. How incredible. One of the, of course, those men, Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice, they arrived in India, and William Carey began to tell them the need for a American mission board to help missionaries from their country. Remember, William Carey was from England. They needed an American mission board. And so Luther Rice saw that vision, and he went back to America and was able to start one of the biggest national mission boards in America, the Triennial Convention. And we'll talk about the Triennial Convention in just a second. Meanwhile, though, Judson stayed in Burma, preached the gospel, gave you a short, condensed version of his life. Eight months after arriving, Judson's son Roger died. Within a short amount of time, Judson and his wife were able to translate the gospel into Burmese. It was six long years. Sounds very similar to the story of William Carey. It was six long years before Judson saw the first soul come to Christ on June 27th of 1819. But war came, and Judson was imprisoned for two years years. They thought he was a spy. But when he got out after being in prison for those two years, his wife died as well as his last child. Would you have quit? Would you have quit? Adonai Judson didn't quit. In 1827, he established the first church and school, married again. In 1833, he finished his entire translation of the Bible into Burmese. He ended up spending 38 years in Burma. Isn't that awesome? That is so awesome. 38 years in Burma. Now let's talk a second for the Triennial Convention. I know we're going a little bit longer today, but the Triennial Convention began in 1814. Its headquarters were in Philadelphia, and they held a national meeting every three years. Now, the original name of this mission board was the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States of America for Foreign Missions. Yeah, that was the entire title, the entire name. It ended up, they met every three years, so they ended up calling it just the Triennial Convention. And so in their first year as a mission board, they sent missionaries to China, India, South America, and Africa. Growth was amazing. In 12 years, they had 111 missionaries organized by 551 churches, saw almost 15,000 professions of faith and missions. God was doing something incredible. But then a difficult thing happened. A difficult thing happened. Slavery 
was becoming a huge topic of debate all over America. Now, the convention took no particular stand on the issue, yet the majority of the Southern members of the Trinidad Convention, well, they supported slavery. And the majority of the Northeastern members, they were against slavery. Kind of like just how the United States played out. James E. Reeves of Georgia, he wanted to be a missionary, but the Triennial Convention said no. He wanted to be a missionary to Africa, but why would the Triennial Convention say no? The reason why is because he owned slaves. How could he own slaves and go be a missionary to people that back then some would say were just slaves? How could he do that? It was a conflict. So in May of 1845, the Southerners within the Triennial Convention who supported Reeves broke off from the Triennial Convention and formed the Southern Baptist Convention. Yes, that is where the Southern Baptists came from, because they wanted to support slavery. In fact, in 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention issued its first formal acknowledgement of its roots in slavery and racial issues. And so that's the reality of the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's a little bit of the history of the Triennial Convention. We won't go into it any more. Now, I want to turn back to America for just a second. There was a man by the name of Jeremiah Vardman. We're not going to take long. We're just going to take about 30 seconds to talk about him, so get ready to hit the stopwatch. I want you to know his name, though. Here we go, 30 seconds. Jeremiah Vardman was a true revival preacher. I mean, he was a revivalist of his day. We don't have time to discuss all of his preaching ministry, but he was a true Baptist preacher. He had a warm personality, convicting preaching, though. He shook America for God. He began preaching across Kentucky, started several churches along the way. He began revivals in Louisville. Vardman believed in the altar call and saw thousands saved during these times of conviction at the end of his sermons. He preached through all of Kentucky and Tennessee, then said farewell and began playing churches in Missouri. He preached the gospel for over 30 years. And so really, my friend, we're done for today, but I want to give you this. I think you'll get something out of this. I want to talk to you just for a second about these men who we've been talking about for a while and how they've passed on. John Waller, remember him? He was swearing John Waller, now preaching John Waller. He preached for 35 years, baptized over 2,000 converts, ordained 27 men into the ministry of preaching. He died July 4, 1802, shortly after preaching a message entitled, Run, Speak to This Young Man, from Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 4. He had an incredible ministry. John Gano finished his course as the pastor of Town Fork Baptist Church in Kentucky. He died August 9, 1804. Tidens Lane left to be with Jesus and really his spiritual father, Shubal Stearns, on January 30th of 1806. Abraham Marshall, who was the son of Daniel Marshall, passed away August 15, 1819. He was 72, preached for 50 years, having baptized over 2,000 converts in the Georgia wilderness. David Jones, remember, he was the Baptist chaplain of Valley Forge. He served in the War of 1812 as well. He died um, February 5th of 1820. Lewis Craig died in 1812, deeply loved by his fellow preaching brothers and congregations abroad. John Weatherford, he had been in prison for his beliefs in Chesterfield. Remember, his hands had been lacerated as he preached from the prison windows. He died January 23rd of 1833. He found out just before he died that Patrick Henry had paid his fine and gained his release. Yes, the Patrick Henry who said, give me liberty or give me death. Incredible. John Leland, the man to whom we truly owe 
the debt of gratitude for our Bill of Rights, died January 14, 1841. He had baptized over 1,500 converts in New England. And Jeremiah Vardman, who I brought up just a minute ago, he knew the day of departure was at hand, called his family around, instructed them to stay faithful for the cause of Christ. He died May 28, 1842, having preached for over 30 years and baptized by his own hands 8,000 converts. What a ministry. What a ministry. You know, the opportunity for these men was there. They seized it. They saw great fruits and saving souls. Here's the question I want to leave you with today. What stops us from doing and seeing the same? What stops us from doing and seeing the, and seeing the same? As you ponder that question, and as you truthfully answer that question, let me encourage you to keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ. <laughs>